continue in our journey through the book of Hosea and this incredible this incredible love story of a prophet who was called to do what seems to be the unthinkable and marry a woman who is destined to become a prostitute her choice and this man is to stay married to her and to continue to love her. He loves her regardless of what she does. You have a child together, and then she ends up having other children without his assistance. And it's a painful situation that the marriage gets to the point of it's so painful that they separate. She leaves him. And she begins to live uh, a path of uh, desperation, uh, a path of, of, of whoredom, a path of tragedy. It's always very painful when somebody who seems like they're doing okay, they, they, they have a good start, and all of a sudden they... They fall off the cliff. I remember a, a lady when I was very young. I was a child, and it didn't just affect me. It affected my family and others. But a woman who seemed to be completely on fire for the Lord, who all of a sudden took a hard turn, rejected her faith, left Christianity, left God, dove headlong into a homosexual lifestyle, which she remains in to this day. I remember um, the pain of that and, and thinking, how, how can this be? She was married. She had kids. Everything seemed right, seemed good, and then boom, it just all fell apart and she was she was gone. In much of this similar situation here, this woman, instead of a homosexual relationship, is involved in one heterosexual relationship after another. This is the sin of adultery. It's painful. And she is thrust into this with reckless abandon. This is her aim. This is her desire. This is what she longs for. And yet Hosea loves her deeply, this prophet. This is a genuine, true account, a historical narrative. For those of you who have not been with us, this is not an allegory. This is not a parable. This is not an illustration. This happened in real life. And it's happened in more than just this life of where somebody has been married and it doesn't always end up being the woman. Many times it's the man who seems like he's doing okay. And then all of a sudden, jets. And that's what's going on here. And there is this painful separation. There is not a final divorce, but it's very painful. 
And so God comes in and he hedges her way with thorns. We saw this in verse 7 of chapter 2. He provides for her in her rebellion. Even though she does not know God, he continues to provide for her even though she is rebelling against him in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2. And then he uncovers her. He exposes her nakedness. This is part of the punishment that we see that is inflicted upon her. But it's really a gracious means to bring her back. It's actually, as we saw last week in verse 10 there, it's a way to protect her and a way to keep her from just keeping on. We said that at some point, if God is going to intervene in somebody's life, the party's got to end. For many people, the party never ends. Oh, they have tragic circumstances, but they just continue on in their life with reckless abandon and sin, and you plead, and you pray, and you ask, and you, you think about them, and you try to talk with them, but there's no turn, and there are people who are determined to head on that path, and they just continue to head on that path, Day after day, after day, after day, after day, after day, listen, until they die. And then that's the end. And so we said with great clarity last week that just because somebody hits rock bottom does not mean that they're going to turn to God. Oh, if they just hit rock bottom, if America just hits rock bottom, if we just hit rock bottom, if... If aunt so-and-so or uncle so-and-so or our son or our daughter or our wife or our husband, if they just hit rock bottom, surely they will turn to God. Not necessarily. So we saw from verse 10 last week that the only way that a person turns to God is when God does something drastic in their life to turn them when they hit rock bottom. When they hit the bottom. This way of the Lord, how he works is quite Interesting, Gomer is representative of Israel who has been running from God. Not everybody in Israel was saved. A lot of people say, well, if they were the people of God, they were automatically saved. No, God was working in their life. God was working in the nation of Israel's life, but it doesn't mean that they were saved. And God can be working in our lives for years. There are times where we look back in our lives and we think, God worked in year 5, and God worked in year 10, and God worked in year 15. It doesn't mean that a person is necessarily saved just because God is working in their life. He's bringing them to a point of conversion. This is one of the baffling things about testimonies around baptism. Sometimes a person will get up before they are baptized and they will say something along the lines of, well, I've always kind of known God, and as I look back over my life, I guess I've always known him, and I've always had a relationship with him, but I've never really followed him. I kind of followed him, and then I kind of didn't follow him. And uh, today is the day where I'm finally kind of making this decision, a declaration that I'm really all in. Well, that's not really a conversion testimony. Listen, there is a point in our lives where we come into this world, we were not born saved. 
And so a person can go through their life and God can be working on their life, calling them, hedging their way with thorns, doing all sorts of things in their life, uncovering their nakedness, doing different things in their life to draw them to him. But it doesn't necessarily mean at that point they were saved. So a person can go throughout their teen years and they can be rebelling against God and they're saying, you know what, I, I know God's at work in my life. I see his hand in my life. But just because God is at work in their life does not mean that they came to the place where they have submitted to his lordship. And it's not until we bow our knee to Jesus Christ that we're saved. You might, you might think back and you might say, well, 10 years ago I was in this near wreck and this car came out of nowhere and I was, I was about to get hit and I could have been killed. And God saved me. Oh, yes, he saved you. That's for sure. And you are marked out and he is working on you. That is for sure. But it's not until a person comes to the point where they say, Lord Jesus, I, I recognize that my whole life you have had me marked out for you. Lord, I do look back in my life and I see how you protected me there. And Lord, I see how you were working in my life here and God, the way that you did this and the way that you continued to provide for me, even in my rebellion, Lord, I was so far away from you. But Lord, I never starved to death. That was, that was your hand. And the way that you protected me in all of the circumstances of life, God, that was you. But listen, just because a, a person is recognizing that and just because a person has seen the hand of God in their life, and somebody can raise their hand and say, it's only by the grace of God that I am what I am. It's not until a person comes to the place where they say, Lord, thank you for marking me out. Thank you, Lord, for thank you, Lord, for uh, taking care of me. Thank you, Lord, for hedging in my way with thorns. Lord, thank you for keeping me from sin in my life. I thank you for all of that. Lord, you've kept me from catastrophic circumstances. Lord Jesus, I finally come to the place where I recognize I was not saved. I wasn't saved. I didn't know you. And so you were working on my heart. But God, I, I didn't really have an understanding of who you were. We think of Israel and we think of the children of Israel. And we think of them as all believers. People who were just these Christians of the Old Testament. But the truth of the matter is, is that many of the Israelites, many of the Jewish people in the Old Testament were complete unbelievers. You're going to find many people from the Old Testament in hell who were Jewish people because they never turned to Yahweh as their savior. You think about the generation that came up out of Egypt and how they fell in the wilderness. And you know why they fell in the wilderness? The scripture says because of unbelief. And it's the same way with Gomer here. God is working on her life, but she's not yet at the point of salvation. She has not really broken. She has not bended her knee to the Lord. God is doing thing after thing in her life. He's preparing her, but the preparation is not salvation at this point. So God takes these steps in order to prepare Gomer. God takes these steps in order to prepare Israel. God takes these steps in order to prepare us, to, to bring us to himself. And by the way, he does the same steps after we get saved if we begin to stray again. 
So he does these same steps before in order to prepare us for salvation. And he also takes these same steps after salvation if we begin to rebel. If you're saved here this morning and all of a sudden you begin to rebel, you actually know the Lord Jesus. He will hedge your way with thorns. He will still provide for you even in your rebellion. He will uncover you and he will uncover your nakedness, and he will do all of these things in order to bring you back to him. This is the way of the Lord. This is how he brings us to conversion, to salvation, and this is the way that he brings us back to himself over and over again in our Christian life. So you're in the middle of doing something. You're contemplating something in your life as a Christian. And one of the mercies of God, you're going, this is not right. I know this is something that I should not be doing. And one of the things that the Lord will begin to do is he'll begin to put obstacles in your way. He'll have, he'll have a video that you're watching, and you'll, you'll come across this, and you'll say, the Lord will speak to you through that, and you'll go, you know what? I shouldn't be doing that. I can't believe I got this from a, a video. You'll be watching TV, and all of a sudden a commercial talks to you. There's a line in a commercial that brings back, that brings back grandma's advice, and you think, God is speaking to me. I shouldn't be doing that. Or perhaps it's a friend. A friend comes to you and says, you really need to think twice before you just jump off the deep end here. He will hedge your way with thorns. This is, this is the mercy of God. And eventually, if you continue to fall into this lifestyle or fall into this path, he will uncover you, and he will make the sin itself distasteful, and he will make you distasteful to sinners. The last thing that he does before he actually brings us to the point of conversion, the last thing that he did with, with Gomer, and the thing that he does with Israel, is he speaks kindly to her. So you have all these different things that he's doing. He's hedging her way with thorns. He's providing for her in her rebellion. He's uncovering her nakedness. But then he draws her in love. He woos her back. Now this is, a, this is a hurt man. This is a man whose wife has, has become a prostitute. And his heart still beats for her. He still, he still loves her. And God says, Hosea, this is how the reason I've called you into this lifestyle is this is how I feel about Israel. I've called Israel and they have rejected me over and over again. But my heart beats for my people. My heart goes out to Israel. I love them and I long for them and I want them to come back to me. So I'm going to hedge their way with thorns. I'm going to still provide for them in their rebellion. I'm going to do all of these different things. I'm going to uncover her nakedness. But in the end, I'm going to bring her back by alluring her. By being the consummate gentleman. In theology, we call this irresistible grace. People say, well, uh, does God just take us unwillingly? Is that what we're saying? Does he just hit us over the head with a hammer and say, you're mine? No, absolutely not. But he irresistibly woos us and he draws us to where we as marked ones cannot resist him any longer. 
We get an image, we get a picture of Christ and his beauty and what he's done for us. And we say, I, I long for him. I want Christ. Listen, no one comes to Christ unwillingly. The only way that we come to Christ is we come with our hands thrown up and our hearts beating for him and saying, I want you. I want to run after you. And the only reason, listen, the only reason anybody feels that way about Jesus. You ever been in a wonderful worship service where you're just saying, Lord, I love you. I love you. The only reason anybody ever feels that way is because of the irresistible drawing of God in which he drew us to himself. It is supernatural. It is powerful. It is wonderful. It is irresistible. Notice with me here in Hosea chapter 2. He says this. Therefore, behold. So now God is talking about Israel. The parallel is in Gomer and in her life. He says, behold, I will allure her. And bring her into the wilderness and speak ten tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Valley of Achor, if you remember, was where Achan was stoned. Achan was the fellow who went into Jericho. God said, leave all the, the devoted things alone. Nacon went in with Joshua and the people of God, and he disobeyed, disobeyed God. He ended up taking some gold, and he ended up taking some garments, kept this in secret until God revealed it to Joshua. And then they ended up, as a punishment, they stoned him to death. This is the Valley of Achor. It's near Jericho. Jim has told me that there was a sermon he still remembers, and now I remember the title of this sermon. Even though I never heard the sermon preached, it's a wonderful title. So if we ever get back to Achan, the title is this, Achan Stole the Bacon. Isn't that wonderful? And that has had, even though I've never heard that sermon, the title itself has had a profound effect on my life. I can't forget it. And so here is Achan. He is, he is killed. For his sin. And God is saying, I will allure you, Israel. I'm going to speak tenderly to you. You know, it's the kindness of the Lord that always draws us to repentance. Yes, we understand that as sinners, we are destined for hell. That's our destination, and rightly so. Not because of God, but because of our own sin. And so God turns us around and he calls us to himself and he says, I love you. And it's when we begin to get a picture of the love of God for us. When our eyes are moist, when we think about the cross and when we think about the beautiful life of Jesus, it's that that draws us to repentance. This is what God is talking about speaking kindly to Gomer, not harshly, not crudely, not mean-spiritedly, but wooing her. 
said, this is unfathomable. This, this God who would, who would love Israel in spite of her harlotry and this, this man who would continue to love his wife in spite of her repeated prostitution. Well, this is illustrative of the love of God. This is how he, he wins us, is he speaks to us tenderly. He speaks to us kindly. He softens our heart with his grace to the point of where we go, I hate my sin. It's not just him, oh, yes, we need to hear the law. You shall not do this, and you should not do this, and you will not do this. We need to hear the law of God clearly speaking to our heart. But only the gospel gives us relief. It's only when we come and we recognize that, yes, I'm condemned. Yes, I have done this. And yes, I have sinned. And yes, I have broken the law of God. But there is relief here and there is relief in the cross of Christ. Notice with me, if you go over to Song of Solomon, chapter one, Song of Solomon, Song of Solomon, chapter one, Song of Solomon, chapter one, verse four, Song of Solomon, chapter one, verse four says this, draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. So here we hear the voice of one saying, draw me after you. Draw me and I will come after you. Woo me and I will follow. What a beautiful text. Draw me after you. Let us run. Let us run together. Lord, if you draw me after you, I will run after you. Let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers we will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Being wooed, being drawn. Notice John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 44. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 44 says this. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. There it is. No one can come. Listen, you can't even have faith. You say, well, I'll believe whenever I want to. No, you won't. Well, I'll just, I'll just make the decision. I'll just say the prayer whenever I want to. No, no, that's not salvation. What God is saying here is that in order to really come to him, from the heart, to really know who he is and long for him and want God, you must first be drawn. It doesn't just say no one can be saved unless the Father draws. It says no one can even come. You can't even have faith. You can't believe. You cannot trust in the Lord Jesus unless the Father, who has sent Christ, draws him, and I will raise him up. On the last day. So here he is. Here is God saying, this is what I'm going to do with Israel. This is how I'm going to win her affections in the end. I'm going to allure her. I'm going to bring her into the wilderness, this dry, desolate place. 
this place that has been associated with shame and judgment, and I'm going to speak sweet nothings to her. I'm going to speak tenderly to her. I'm going to win her. Go over to Jeremiah chapter 3. We see this speech of God, the way that he speaks to his people, that is the way that he speaks out to his his marked out ones. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 12. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 12. says this, Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. Here it is. Here's this gentle speech that we're talking about. Here is the way that God speaks to us. And husbands and fathers, it's a wonderful lesson in how the Lord expects us to speak with our spouses and with our children and those around us. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Here it is. Only acknowledge your guilt. Now listen, this this is the key. This is the turning point. God is taking all of these steps to win Israel back to himself. And someone doesn't just kind of prance and waltz into the kingdom of heaven and nothing has ever changed. No, no, that's not salvation. That's not conversion. So a person is going along in life and they are acknowledging God has been working on my life all along. But here's the point of conversion. Here is the point where somebody actually comes and says, okay, Lord, your your love is sweeter than wine. Lord, I, I want you more than anything. It's when there's genuine repentance. Repentance. And this is what he is saying here. Only acknowledge your guilt. Only get to the place where you say, God, forgive me. God, forgive me a sinner, but I acknowledge my faithlessness to you. He says, acknowledge your guilt, that you have rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Repent. The word repentance, that is acknowledging of guilt, the turning from our sin, it's not a harsh, heavy-handed word. It's a beautiful word. The moment that we become soft, the moment that we repent, For some of us, not all of us, the moment that tears begin to stream down our cheeks and we say, oh, Lord, you've been so good to me and I never saw it. Lord, I acknowledge my sin before you. I never saw the way that you were hedging my my path with thorns. I had suspicions about things, but I never got it. But I never realized that was you providing for me all those years. When I was in utter rebellion for you, you kept me alive. Why did you keep me alive? You, you didn't have to, but you kept me alive. You did it because you had marked me out for you. Lord, you've brought me to a place where you have uncovered my nakedness. Lord, you've exposed my sin. But all I can hear from you are your tender words of love. 
All I can hear from you is your words of kindness to me. That you would be so kind and so gracious to me in the midst of all of this sin. It's the moment, listen, it's the moment when somebody acknowledges their guilt before the Lord. It's the moment where they say, I'm a sinner. It's a moment when they stop trying to impress everybody else and trying to have to fulfill themselves by building themselves up, making the idol of their own life. That all of a sudden, and we have seen it over and over again, there is sweet release. You hear this morning, you feel bound. This is not the harsh word of God. This is the kind word of God. Turn. Turn and repent. And the moment that he begins to work on your heart and you release that in repentance is the moment that you will feel cleansed. And this happens again over and over again in salvation, even after we've been saved, where we are cleansed over and over again by the blood of Jesus Christ as we confess our sins. But the only reason we come to Christ, listen, the only reason we come to Christ is because he drew us to himself. That's the only reason. It's not because we made a great decision. It's not because we're so smart. It's not because you're in a church. It has nothing to do with any of that. You did not love God first, but he chose you and he loved you first. And when he loved you, you heard his voice and you came to him with great sincerity and great truth because your heart had been drawn to him by him. Now notice what he says in verse 16, chapter 2 here in Hosea. He says, in, in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. I want you to call me my husband. That's what he's saying. I want you to call me that again. They, they had actually started calling him by a different name. They'd gotten the, his name mixed up. It was a horrible situation. Can you imagine being called by a name that is not your name? Well, that's what was going on with Israel. They were calling him by another name. He's saying, in that day you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. Can you imagine calling God by some false name? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine calling him by some false name like Allah? Some other name. Some other name. Perhaps it's a, perhaps it's a God that's not a trinity. I was listening to someone recently, and he was, he was arguing passionately. He said, oh, I believe in Jesus, but I don't, I don't believe in the trinity. One God and three persons? He said, I don't believe in that. Listen, Christianity is triune. If you're a Christian, you're a Trinity person. There's one God and three persons. We dare not call him by any other name. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, yet one God. There's only one God. And so we call him by his right name. And we call him by the name, the second person of the Trinity. We call his name Jesus. And there's no more powerful name in the world than the name of Jesus. You ever get stuck? Just call his name. He's with you because you're never alone. Jesus. So he says, you're not going to call me by these other names. I'm going to remove all of these names. 
He says, verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. I'm gonna, this separation is going to stop. I'm taking you back to me. I'm going to establish righteousness and justice and steadfast love. Now, we could keep going, but we need to get to chapter 3 because we've got about five minutes here, okay? So we're gonna, you want to see an exposition of chapter 3 here. Here we go. Here we go. In the shortest amount of time ever. So God is saying this to Israel. He's saying, I love you. I'm going to draw you back to me. I'm going to draw you back to me. And now he gets back to Hosea in real time, in real space, in real history. He says, I want you to do something. I want you to go find your wife. He says, and the Lord said to me, go again. Now she's gone. She's been gone for a long time. He says, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other God and love cakes of raisins. That had to do with a, a ritual with a false religion, Canaanite gods. He says this to Hosea. He says, I want you, I want you to go find your wife. She's a prostitute, and I want you to love her, and I want you to bring her back home. Dr. Rogers writes this. He says this is how he sees this taking place. God comes to Hosea. Hosea is now to go out looking for her. He writes this. Hosea went out and searched through the marketplace. For the woman who had left so long ago. I am inferring, he says, of course, but perhaps he began in the better part of town and persistently worked his way down to the slums, the red light district. Finally, he saw a dirty, cowering, abused woman whom he recognized as the one he had loved and married so many years ago. His heart went out to her, and he sought out the cruel man under whose control she worked. And evidently, by the context, owned her. So here he is. He's walking through the city. He's looking for his wife. And he finally finds this woman who, according to the context, has not only become a harlot, but she has also become a slave, that's how bad things had gotten for her. Verse 2, so I, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. The, the cost of a slave, according to Exodus chapter 21, is 30 shekels. So with the 15 shekels and then the food that he gives to buy her, he comes to around 30 shekels of silver, and he buys his wife back. What a scene. He loves her. And he says to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore, verse 3, or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. 
Oh, how he loves her. Oh, how the Lord loves us. There was one in closing who became a slave not because he had sinned, but he became sin who knew no sin. He became a slave, and if you go over to Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26, verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him what? Thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Our Lord, instead of being bought back, was sold for 30 pieces of silver that you and I might be purchased by his, by his blood. One more verse. We'll pick up next week where we left off. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Galatians chapter 3. Go to verse 10. For all who, Galatians 3, rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written anything. Uh, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all these things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Here it is, verse 13. Christ bought us back. That's the word redeemed. How did he buy us back? He bought us back by being sold for 30 pieces of silver and crucified on a tree. Christ redeemed us. He bought us back from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He bought us back. He stood in our place. Gomer is bought back. And the Lord redeems us back. How does he redeem us back? He redeems us back with his own with his own precious blood. Would you stand with me as we close? I could ask the worship team if they would come forward. Father, as we come to you, we thank you for this, this love story of how you woo us. You, you bring us back to you. Lord, you have marked us out. There are all sorts of means and ways that you bring us back to you. But in the end, God, it's by your kindness to us. It's by you speaking tenderly to us. Lord, we ask you uh, today that we'd get a vision of what Christ has done for us, a, a view of that. And the, the price that you paid, how you became a slave in our place that we might be set free. 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. You were sold. 
Jesus, we thank you for what you did for us so that we might know you and experience everlasting joy. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.